The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. On, okay, on, come on, start, let's go from the start, sorry. On the last, up. Go. do the whole thing from the yeah, start. Yeah, go the whole thing from the start. <laughs> <laughs> what the I'm fuck? So editing, editing exists. We don't, we don't have to take, we don't have to, this no. is not as live. We don't have to take everything back to fucking yeah, live. Like, Tēnā koutou koutou, this is Gone By Lunchtime with me, Toby Manhai, Annabelle Lee Mather, executive producer of The Hui, Ben Thomas, and a very special guest, Ricky Martin, on uh, Ben Thomas's chest. He's looking fine there. You were telling us before we started this podcast that you went to a Ricky Martin concert. It was slightly disappointing, but you bought the T-shirt anyway. Yeah, my life changed in, I think it was October the 6th, 2014. It was my last day at Parliament. Um, as soon as the new Attorney General, Chris Finlayson, was sworn in, mm. uh, replacing the old Attorney General, Chris Finlayson, mm. uh, my events-based contract at Parliament finished. I got a text from somebody up at Government House saying, it is done. I packed my bags, left, took a flight up to Auckland, and went to the Miley Cyrus concert at Victor Arena. Mm. And it was the greatest day of my life. Um, I had wasted my life at sort of underground punk and rock venues mm. to that point. Mm disgusting little scrotes who couldn't play their guitars <laughs> or sing. And the the, the greatest <laughs> endorphin engineers <laughs> of the world combined with Miley Cyrus mm. to just blow my brain out of my head. And I was like, now I see what I've been missing all this time. I'm dedicating myself to stadium pop mm. superstars. Mm. So when Ricky Martin came some months later, there was no question I bought the T-shirt in advance, knowing that I would, you know, shoot into even more stratospheric heights of, like, mm. dopamine delirium. Mm. And the show sucked. But now I now I got this T-shirt. God, and I love that for you. It's, 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 it's magnificent. Great conversation, Stella. Mm. Thanks to Yohe Butler for uh, bearing with us. We've uh, been prattling on for ages, and we've just learned there's another podcast coming in soon. So we're going to have to rattle through this. Thanks also to Spin-Off members. We adore you, Win Beneath Our Wings. We've got a lot to get through today. Oh, I had a topical joke. Oh. Can we just oh. get, let's, yeah. I love a topical joke. Go. I was, was going to say that the T-shirt's a few <laughs> years old now, so talk about a squeezed middle. Oh, that's so oh, good. Yes. That is so good. Okay. okay, thank you. You've been listening to Gone By Lunchtime. We'll be back in a fortnight. <laughs> no, it's very good. We will talk about the squeeze middle, which... Um, is an interesting, uh, strange, nebulous concept. We'll talk about the emissions reduction plan, the budget, just under idea and going to Washington, Australia, maybe trade deals, maybe a little bit of Chloe Swarbrick if we have time, but we don't have a lot of time, so we're going to talk very quickly like this the entire course, like a racing commentary. If you, by the way, 
have any questions you want put to Annabelle or Ben or Ricky Martin, then um, send them to me on toby at thespinoff.co.nz along with any other thoughts, feedback. Is that crazy to ask for feedback? I just thought it'd be cool. I listened to some Australian Does it podcasts. sound a bit despo though? Like, give us attention. Oh. Ask us a question. I'm just looking to engage the audience, Bells. Oh, okay. I, just, I mostly want relationship questions. Okay. I want people to ask me about the Amber Heard Johnny Depp troll because, like, I know everything. Really? Yeah. I've Yeah, I've been focusing more on the Wagatha Christie trial. Have you been following that too? It's perfect. I just, that is, you know, beautiful British what entertainment. What is that? What is that? It's the Colleen Rooney uh, uh, versus Rebecca Vardy trial, or Rebecca Vardy versus Colleen Rooney, you know, the one where she... It's Wagatha Christie because, like, the wags, and she whittled down her Instagram story, people who could see it, until Incredible the point that she exposed. It's, it's, just, it's just beautiful. And, and then she's been sued. And it has so Rebecca added... Vardy has, has sued for defamation, but then for the discovery for that, Rebecca Vardy now has to hand over all of her DMs and private messages. So there's... There's discussion about Peter Andre's uh, little uh, what chorizo, yeah. <laughs> chipotle, and the other, the other, the other delectable detail was the, the course of it. A telephone that contained most of the discoverable evidence was dropped by I think it was by her agent who was doing a selfie on a boat in the middle of the North Sea. Wow. It, it was very The Wire season two, just like. The- <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's much more ocean. wholesome than the than 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 the old Amber Heard Johnny Depp it's just, trial. It sounds amazing, but I, yeah. I, well, I've just got to. I mean, I'd love to get into the work of the Christie, but I've just got to carefully manage how much time I spend in court, and yep. m- my primary yep. focus has to be Johnny and, and yep. Amber for now. Do you have a take on that? Is that a, is that cancelable take? I, 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 yeah. I don't. I find it. I don't want to be serious, but I've it's some of the material that is surfacing, including on. My son's TikTok about that trial is quite weird. Well, my favourite, my favourite stuff to to consume when it comes to that trial is people doing cat memes and cat videos, like uh. to the testimony. That's my my favourite stuff. So, little ginger cats dressed up in um, Pirates of the Caribbean outfits and stuff is, is where it's at. Did you have time just to try and see if we might get a little bit of politics into this conversation, mm. Annabelle, in between your uh, obviously responsibilities to the court, to watch any of the Australian election? Did no. You? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't get to see any of the Australian election, but I read about it afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and do you have any opinions on the results in the Australian election, any thoughts, any observations any sizzling hot takes? Well, I think kind of what it says is that, like for Australians, climate change is a lot less of an abstract idea as it is for New Zealanders. Hmm. You know, like literally when your country catches on fire for months on end and then rains for a long time, it's sort of harder to be in denial about it. But I do kind of think that there was echoes of the election result they've just had in our last election result, and that is like Chloe winning Auckland Central, because I think that mm. in urban cent- people in urban centres probably care a bit more or feel more motivated about climate change than people who live rurally do because they've got skin in the game in terms of agriculture mm. and all of that kind of stuff, whereas people who live in the city can afford to like care more about the 
you know, being on fire and whatnot. So I, I don't think it's like completely out of the blue. It's a little bit similar to what's happened here. I think there's important lessons for Jacinda Ardern and her advisors come the next election, primarily don't be lured onto a netball court or a rugby field to yeah. play sports against <laughs> yeah. children. I think yeah. that's a big one. Um, what else did I think about it? Um, I, in terms of the 501s, I don't think that this is going to have a, a huge impact on, on, on what's happening here with the 501s being deported. I do think there may be a bit of a, a slight softening, maybe more use of that ministerial discretion part of their legislation. But yeah. if we think it's going to stop the flow, it's not. It's not going to turn around, but it might. It might. It might. It might, I mean, it might have been that Scott Morrison would have accelerated it. You know, um, he'd been hinting yes. at that. So, yeah, so yeah. I mean, that's, a, th that's a pretty small, yeah. small game. But, but the, the tap won't be turned off because, by and large, Australians are xenophobes and they love kicking people out of the country. And so. and the different between the two parties on that, it's the same as on the, you know, the the refugee, the boat people thing, as they call it, you know, that the, the difference between the two parties has been eliminated. And Ben, the <clears throat> there was a lot of talk in the in the Australian election campaign about this 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 small target strategy um, and it, that was being run by Albanese and Labour after after what happened last time around with Shorten, when it was seen that basically you had Scott Morrison himself, then a li little bit more of a, a new <laughs> a newbie for the Australian public who hadn't yet got to know him and dislike him. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but it became an election about the opposition. You know, it became an election, you know, which we remember a bit in terms of some of the Labour years here, in terms of the way that John Key made it about David Cunliffe. Sh show him, me the money. Know, yeah. the show me the money stuff, all that sort of stuff. And the small target... Strategy, which is not a new thing and has been talked about in the New Zealand politics before, but the Australians love to talk about it, was the idea that there was much less to aim at, to put it simply, right? Yeah. And both, both parties do this. You know, uh, John Key ran a small target strategy in 2008. Mm. You, you tend to do it when the tide is turning against the government. Um, you know, you, People say oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them, and the mm. small target strategy is sort of the, the logical extension of that. You basically, and, and look, National is certainly doing that now. You know, they're concentrating, you know, laser-like on cost of living and government spending, just those two things. Yep. They don't want to get into the details yep. on particularly much at all. Uh, you know, and, and look, Labor does the same sort of thing. You know, when Jacinda Ardern ruled out capital gains tax forever, finally, she put to bed a big bogeyman that had been used against Labor yep. in elections, you know, for the last decade. Um, Similarly, going back to superannuation now with both parties, right? Yeah, that's right. And you, you, you've seen it, you know, I mean, climate change is another good example in the sense that in New Zealand, you actually don't have, you know, as you pointed out in your spin-off piece about the Australian elections, you don't have that big gap between the two parties or the two factions on climate change. National says we agree with the targets. You know, we agree with you know climate action. We agree with reducing our carbon emissions. Um, that's that wasn't the case in Australia. You know, where it became a marked difference. You know, in the opposition's favour. Well, um, within the, within what's called the coalition, the Nationals, you had. Basically, people trying well, to be their national tickets, just going around saying, "Yeah, fuck that, we're not going to do." Yeah, they can yeah. say what they like. I mean, you know, pretty well, much. They said it's dead in the water. Yeah. you know. Now, uh, you know, particularly with urban voters, that that won't wash anymore. But in in New Zealand, you know, part of that small target thing is saying, "Yeah, look, sure, we agree with that." 
It's fine. You just you reduce the differences, yeah. and you make you make one big difference, which is you know cost of living. And the interesting thing about cost of living is you don't even really have to promise much. You just point out that things aren't great now, yeah. and, and and people sort of fill fill it in. You know the same way that um, the same way that your brain fills oh. in the detail in a picture, yeah. even though you're only focusing on what's yeah. right in the center. And you make this is when that old adage about being the leader of the opposition is the hardest job in Parliament is actually completely incorrect because you can just sit there and, and, and throw stones and not really have to do back it, it up with any policy oh, or anything. Absolutely. Yeah. I, when I started, um, I went to work in the Beehive at the beginning of the key government. And, you know, various colleagues that I'd talked to had been there in opposition. And they said, oh, opposition must be a bit stink because, you know, you don't get to do anything. You're not, you're not involved in actual change. And they said, "Ah, oh, yeah, but last year and a half was pretty good because you just you just attack the government, then you're done by four pm, and you sit back and watch the news yep. and watch the government fall in popularity, and it's great." And it's one of the reasons that isn't it that people the, the the posters like to look at the right track wrong wrong track a lot these days because from an opposition point of view, if if the if it's tracking the right way for you, then as you say, get the hell out of there, you know, <laughs> and, and, and make it a referendum on the way we're going. And if the way we're going includes cost of living, includes ram raids, includes, you know, you, that may or may not be able to be pinned to the government or policy, but it suits you. Yeah, yeah. And look, as, as the uh, Labour Party showed, small target often works better for getting elected Um you know, we, we saw this with Labour as well, you know, back in, in twenty seventeen. You know, they, they would they started Jacinda Ardern started making a lot of captain's calls, ruling out the sort of super ambitious plans. Yeah. Apart from, you know, you know, obvious sort of uh, moonshot vote getters like Kiwi Belt. Yeah. Um, but you know, things which would have negative effects that you could point to. Um and so yeah, look, it's it's smart politics. It's not it isn't great for democracy. Doesn't make general. for big um, ideas-based yeah. campaigns. One of, the, one of the things, Annabelle, you, you mentioned was um, that in some in some ways the the things we saw in the Australian election were had their foreshadows in in, in in New Zealand. And one of the obvious differences is we have an electoral system that is designed to allow voices beyond the two main parties. That is its, that is its raison d'etre, right, um, after what happened in the, you know, 70s and, and early 80s. And um, this this election was interesting in Australia because neither party, both party, both main parties lost vote. It's just that Labor didn't lose as much as the coalition did. They went down by, I think, almost a percent in terms of their vote. And you saw the rise of these independents, including the Teal independents that you mentioned, which are grabbing seats off um, in these, you know, leafy, uh, wealthy, uh, liberal strongholds, you know, places as well and where, they, where, where, the, where the Liberal Party in Australia does lots of fundraising, you know, has lots of functions. It's really important stuff. But maybe that's less of a problem here because we have those third parties already already around. Do you think that there will be anything in, ter- in playing out in terms of our election, in terms of uh, the the strain on the on the National Party with a Teal thing, or I guess even with the other things we talk about is the, ro- the role of women, you know, the fact that it was, that basically women got, you know, some, an, a, 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 some terrific writing on this in the Australian press about women getting basically done over in this election and responding both in terms of the candidates, in terms of the policies and in terms of the vote. It's, it is extraordinary that in the year 2022, you would have a major governing party 
of you know a Western democracy lo- losing because you know they they <laughs> they didn't have enough representation of women and they dismissed women's concerns um, sort of you know, even more on a rhetorical level. You know, it's not that there was anything, you know, Australia is not like the United States where you're seeing sort of, you know, the the repeal of Roe and sort of genuine attacks on women's rights. A lot of it was a, mm. a sort of tonal thing mm. where the LNP and the Liberals in particular, have, you know, the the National Party is sort of, you know, these sort of buffoons, but the the Liberal Party has been, openly provocative and antagonistic, going way back to when uh, Tony Abbott became Prime Minister. And, you know, he had one woman in his cabinet of 20 and no Minister of Women's Affairs. And when there was, a you know, a small mini outcry about that, he sort of stood at the podium and said, well, I've appointed a Minister of Women's Affairs and it's me. (laughs) Right. How do you like that, ladies? Any <laughs> any issues you'd like to raise with your minister? You know, like honestly, just like a middle finger the size of Uluru, <laughs> like, and and the you know if, if it shows anything, it shows that the dalliance that I think the liberals had with these sort of culture wars, uh, you know, went really badly for them. Um, and and you can see that if you know Luxon has been very vocal, saying that you know he needs to more diversity in that national caucus. The list will be a real moment of truth for them, and, mm. and, and some of the candidate selections and seats that they're likely. Well, we to saw Todunga, didn't we? Where there was that kind of unforgettable picture of the, and but 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 that's that's that those those candidate selections are made within the electorates themselves, and it's the list which is the main. But where that's corrected, mm. uh, uh, just in terms of the, the the climate change aspect, like I don't mm. think that there's going to be an impact. In it at our next election, but potentially the one after. And I think that what it shows is that there's there's room to move within the green space. And I think that, yeah. you know, if the Greens aren't smart, we may see some new types of green movements, whether it's teal green or a more purpley green, I don't know, that, yep. that, um, that starts to fill that space. Like I'm sure that there will be people who... Um, who are di- disappointed with with James Shaw's um, emission reduction scheme, and so we could see the the, the rise of a more left a left wing green, mm. a, a more um, uh, not extreme, but a, a, a green movement that that wants greater change faster, and a teal movement, and there there could be room for them, and with with MMP that could happen. It's true, isn't it, that even though. Notwithstanding the things we've said about how there are already there is already uh, much less distance between the main parties on climate than there is what is I think undeniably true is that here there around the world climate may not be the number one decisive factor in people's votes but it is increasing it is increasing and it will continue to increase and it will continue to be a more of a factor in elections and so for example for a party like top will have to make a decision about how much they foreground that when they determine whatever their two three four you know big 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 policies are can it can i just make a prediction that top's top will say a ubi will solve climate change <laughs> And, um, he, and here are 25 pages of graphs to show you why. <laughs> um, <laughs> to, to, to a press conference held in a s- small phone booth. We're not doing very well so far in terms of motoring through things, and that's my fault. Albanese was sworn in, and then within a matter of minutes, he was sort of zoomed off to, to Japan. 
to take part in the quad. And there seems to have been a whole bunch of, in the in the Asia-Pacific region, a whole bunch of geopolitical stuff happening in the last few days, which I know excites everybody. There was also the announcement Ardern has set off to Washington, which I think she's arriving with like two massive suitcases full of milk powder to solve the <laughs> shortage there, direct from, um, direct from uh, New World Victoria Park. And... Uh, before she left, she at the airport, she took part in a meeting to to announce the next stage of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. I think that's right, uh, which is uh, which is kind of the the not the not the CPTPP or the CP3PO, as the nerds in Wellington have taken to calling it. Um, uh, um, it's. I'm just uh, writing down the names of all of these. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, like the, yeah. The, and um, and Ardern is going to is in New York now. I she's think in New York. She's she going just, to meet the president from Stephen Colbert. She's she, been at the UN. She, she emerged from her motorcade yeah. and told reporters that she didn't even notice the motorcade. Which I think is something. There's something about Labour prime ministers. Helen Clark didn't notice when she was going 170 k's along the <laughs> plains of the Waitaki. I once did an interview with an interview maybe, with Clark maybe like Gayford. Strange balance. There's a very good bit in an interview I did with Clark Gayford. He was very entertaining on motorcades, on going on a trip around Europe with Ardern. When I think maybe the first one after she was made prime minister, and just noting all the how all the motorcades uh, offered kind of clues to the cultural nature of the, yeah. you know, like the way the, the Germans were very something and the Brits were very something. It's quite entertaining. The Americans are lots of machine guns. They love it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just kicking over pedestrians yeah. just to prove they can. Yeah. So let's let's go straight to that, to Ardern in America. Annabelle, there's been talk about whether or not the White House meeting will happen. She's gone there with a trade delegation. There's going to be a sort of a general push to try and get a whole lot of people to sign up to travel to New Zealand. She's got a clipboard. She's going to get people to <laughs> sign their names, leave their emails. They've got six spare places on the Hercules. <laughs> on, on the plane back. Um, but how important is that White House meeting? The way it's being briefed is that uh, because of, because of she, you know, she ha- has had COVID recently. In fact, she missed, the, she couldn't catch the 757 that left for the delegation because she had to hold off for the period of time you had to have been since you testing negative, et cetera. And the White House obviously has quite strict COVID protocols, and so they're trying to work their way around that. It sounds, I mean, you would have thought they wouldn't be saying that unless there was a reasonable confidence that the meeting would happen it's, if they can do that. How, how much it, of a big deal is it? Well, it sounded like the meeting was going to be a given before she got COVID, didn't it? But then it's sort of compl- being complicated by COVID. I actually think, given what's going on in the States at the moment, that Biden would probably be quite keen to meet with her, to be seen with mm. this like very progressive um, young wahine leader, especially mm. given, you know, Roe v. Wade and all of that sort of stuff. Like, she is very popular in the US. Mm. And, um, and so I imagine that, you know, it, it wouldn't be a massive chore for them to, to meet with put her. They're probably a, put quite a like black that. top on him and a squeaky kiwi and the whole thing. Yeah, so I think um, with the exception of what's his name, Carlson Tucker or whatever. That... Catch up on how Burton Shipley's doing. Yeah. Tucker Carlson. Yeah, yeah. Is she going on that show? NZ Hellhole will be 
Yeah. yeah no. He calls her. He, Trending he, a note on. He calls her that squeaky woman with the teeth, I think was his oh, tender, tender epithet for for the New Zealand Prime Minister. Ben, how much of a big deal is it? I mean, and it's sort of it's a big deal because it's being played out in the in the in in the talkback conversations. You know, Will it's sort of a nice thing to boil it down. And John Key said she needs the she needs the the White House meet you know, it's sort of is it does it really matter? If you don't get the White House meet I mean, you don't get the golf game. Well this okay. is crucial. Well, well we, this is the crucial where's the, first step. Where's the fucking tweet? That's what I want to know. <laughs> where's the Barack Obama tweet? That's what she needs to come back with. You know who the CE of Air New Zealand was at the time? Um Remind me. Who brought over Obama? Can't think of any famous it was, it former. Was Christopher Luxon. Oh. No way. And wow. he hasn't been held accountable for the tweet. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, look, I mean, obviously, any New Zealand leader meeting the leader of the United States is a big deal. You know, it is important for us to be on the world stage involved in these discussions. There, there are, you know, there are big things happening with the United States and with Australia, you know, AUKUS. Um, that we're not really involved in. And, we, you know, there are arguments about, you know, where we should be positioned there. There's no clear-cut answers. But we at least need to be on the periphery of those discussions. Um, you know, we, we need to be a, a live sort of actor. Um, from the point of view of pure politics, it is, it is good for, you know, the Prime Minister to be seen on the world stage, um, you know, whether... Uh, appearing on the cover of Vogue is sort of, you know, being in Vogue is, you know, particularly important, you know, who knows. But sure, yeah, shaking hands with the president, yeah, obviously, you know, it sort of puts you on a kind of plane of leadership, you know, above your competitors. So, you know, from that point of view, you know, an important thing for Ardern to do. And look, you know, geopolitics is not as settled as once it was. Mm. Um, China is, China is, is sort of, showing the sort of expansionism, uh, you know, in a more heavy-handed way in the Pacific than, you know, probably the, the, the sort of level of kind of involvement that, you know, everyone's been anticipating mm. uh, but has been, you know, we, you know, we sort of walk around it. Um, you know, obviously events in Europe uh, are providing a challenge to the geopolitical world order, the rules-based system, and... You know, at, at its heart, you know, that's New Zealand's key interest is that's a rules-based right. system for trade. And that's what this Indo-Pacific economic framework is, is a great big fudge because they want to assert the rules-based framework. They want to assert America's role in the region against a rising China, but they don't want to allow access to their markets because <laughs> then they will lose the election. That's the calculation. And so they're trying to juggle all those things. Then we also had, of course, you mentioned... And, and that's right. Europe. I didn't even bring up the prospect of a free trade agreement with the US because it will literally never happen. Well, so. yeah. I mean, this is the, 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 this is the struggle they have, that basically the, the, T, the TPP, now the CPTPP, which, you know, was was jettisoned by Donald Trump in almost his first act, were, it seems, as you say, dead in the water, which is very frustrating, I think, for a lot of the people who spent so long on it. Whether or not it's got a year is another matter. And then meanwhile there's Canada who are proving quite uh, frustrating in terms of their, you know, them, we're taking them to whatever the, 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 the tribunal is. It's not the WTO, is it? 
let's leave that right there. Um, meanwhile, as well, Taiwan, you know, you talk about Europe and Ukraine. We had Joe Biden, who was in Japan for this quad meeting, and who said yes when asked whether or not they would take up arms in defence of Taiwan, you know, which um, sent the State Department <laughs> into an absolute frenzy of trying to say, no, no, it's no change to our existing, what's it called, strategic ambiguity. ambiguity yeah. Status and so and 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 all of that. Uh, it's a it's a big swirl of stuff, right? Um, including a little kind of footnote, which is New Zealand not signing a letter from the missions in Taiwan, calling again for Taiwan to have observer status at the World Health Assembly, which is underway now in Geneva. All this stuff. There are all these different little parts, and it's New Zealand. Is not a big part in that, but in terms of trying to balance that relationship between Washington and Beijing, yeah, that would suggest that for Joe Biden, a meeting is a good idea, and that the chances are it will probably happen if they can if they can make it so, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's um, plus more motorcades. Let's. Um, let's shift back. Seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't. It was just over a week ago. We had the budget. Not even a week. Not even a week ago. Oh, six days. Six ago. days ago. Um, how's your squeeze middle now, Ben? We were talking about squeeze middle before, trying to work out what it was. Did we work out what it was, Bells? Did you solve the what is? No, can you define the squeeze middle? I don't know what it is. I'm so confused. I don't know who's in and who's out and yeah. where it kicks in. Do you have to have kids or I don't know? Do you get a card like a squeeze middle card. Yeah. I mean that's that's because if because if you got a gold, it's not a gold card. A mum and dad investors squeezed. I don't like. Yeah, who, they're, oh, they're squeezed. They're squeezed. I've just, I've got to be honest. I've just been like, it's been keeping me up all night, like just worrying about the intergenerational unfairness well, squeeze, for like Max squeeze, Key and squeeze. <laughs> is Max Key part of the squeeze middle? It is. It, it is, is the only squeeze. squeezed middle. Max Key. Max Key has is when he does a two minute plank. Yeah, he can really squeeze his We're talking about the squeeze middle because there was much talk uh, with the cost of living crisis, inflation, yada, 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 how this budget was about uh, uh, serving the interests or trying to mollify the squeeze middle, which is people who are founding their spending power reduced. Um, and, 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 and while it seems quite an ambiguous term, it's, Ed Miliband was the first. I don't know if he was the first user. He certainly popularised it. Uh, Maybe maybe twelve years ago or so in the UK, where it was about uh, UK Labour trying to uh, address the fact that there were people who everybody was struggling in houses across what we could call Middle England, for want of a better term, and that was Ben Wentz this three hundred and fifty dollar uh, cash payment and a bunch of instalments is going to is, is trying to address people who have seen uh, the cost of living wipe out their what might have some years ago been a bit more comfortable existence and struggling to meet their bills, mortgages, rents, uh, as the price of tasty cheese goes through the the roof, had to downgrade to Colby. Um, On a scale, I mean, you can look at it different ways, right? Like an, an attempt to directly address the cost of living crisis for people who aren't receiving benefits or aren't wealthy enough. You could look at it as a direct bribe to a group of voters. The, and, and and the latter is is its genesis, right? Labour will, you know, we, we know that it, it was devised in a shorter time frame than much of what else was in the budget. Mm. Um, it is. It's a Grant Robertson special. 
it's you know which group of voters doesn't fit haven't we done anything for recently uh who are we in danger of losing to national uh it's people in this income bracket uh you know let's give them 350 bucks let's give them you know the same as the winter energy payment for a for a single person is it i think it is yeah yeah um and, and you know, Treasury obviously said that that's probably not the best way to do it. Um, Patrick Smelly actually wrote a good piece in Business Desk about Treasury maybe having to reassert its role as a bit of a gatekeeper of public finances, which it's fallen down a bit on in the last sort of you know, decade or two. Um, the Politically, it's actually really interesting because I, I looked at the, the timeline. So the first payment comes on 1 August. Mm. The government's extended fuel subsidy cuts out 15 August. That was oh. also a budget announcement. And then you get two, Extended, two, two, two more, months. Yeah. yeah, and then you get two more um, of your, your cost of living allowance payments. So in a way, Robertson is trying to sort of smooth out that kind of removal of the subsidies so that people won't sort of feel immediately... Um, you know, more hard done by squeezed up because because you know if you you know as you, as you can see by driving around fuel back up to about three bucks, it's back up to about the same price that it was uh, when uh, you know Re- when it was it, seen it, as it, politically it, right. untenable yeah, yeah. and and a twenty five cent uh, discount was slapped on the excise charge, so you know there will be a shock uh, and a political shock you know unless something you know magical happens in the oil market around that mid-August point, at which point people's fuel bills will go up again. You will have just received, you know, two weeks ago, you will have received your first $110 payment, and that can go in your, in your gas card, and then you've got two more payments to come. So in a, in a way, you know, the government does have this sort of, because the government has, is taking these steps to sort of cushion the cost of living uh, increases, mm. You know, you are you are left with this sort of you know there ha- there is an endpoint somewhere, and that endpoint is going to be politically difficult, and it becomes harder and harder to sort of pull out of it. So, you know, after uh, one October, which is the last payment, at that point, then the government has its own, you know another political challenge in terms of cost of living, and they will hope that inflation is sort of smoothed over. The war in Ukraine is finished. Uh, Russia has been conquered by the United States, which has increased its oil production for the <laughs> territories. Um, that, but you know, this is this is this, these are the sort of vexed problems you get when you sort of try to manipulate, you know, each family or each individual's yeah. uh, experience of cost of living problems. Look, I'm I'm not an economist, but I am an astrologist, yes. and from an Aries <laughs> rising perspective, um, I was underwhelmed by the budget. Um, I don't know when the last time Grant Robertson went shopping was, but $350 is literally like not even an overflowing size trolley of, of, of groceries. So I think what it does is it kind of fiddles around the edges, but it doesn't really go to the heart of what is squeezing the middle. And again, I think it comes back to Labor not being courageous enough when it comes to issues like capital gains tax, like a financial transaction tax, like um, removing GST on groceries. I mean, people are saying it's like classic Grant Robertson. I would love to have seen a policy like the when he removed um, interest from student loans. Like that was a genuinely transformational policy. So, you know, is 
much aroha as I have for the squeezed middle, I'm also worried about the crushed poor. Yep. And I think Labor could have done something truly transformational, like um, um, forgiving all debt owed to wins by beneficiaries. Because when we stick people in, in, um, in emergency housing, they're actually being charged for that. They have to pay that back. When they go get a food grant, they have to pay that back. And we know that the system is encrusted with racism because when you look at the rates that that debt is paid back at, Māori beneficiaries, particularly Māori women, are charged at a higher rate than Pākehā. That, uh, whose article was that? Someone recently did a, a, an investigation into it. So those, I think, would have been... Um, um, really transformational change and from an indigenous perspective you know if we're not going to tax the rich can we at least eat them that's all I want to know certainly something to consider maybe chuck it into Golders Garamond's um, bill there's a bunch of different electoral reform <laughs> options there Might get onto that. But, I mean it, it does show the sort of um, conceptual incoherence you know, when you start getting into, you know, subsidies here, subsidies there, giveaways here and there. So during the during COVID, during the lockdowns, uh, the government increased the, doubled the winter energy payment for superannuitants and beneficiaries to reflect the travails of COVID. Hmm. Now, their, their costs didn't increase over COVID and their income didn't go down because they're, in, they're on fixed incomes. So actually, they, you know, people on fixed incomes were the least affected by the COVID lockdowns. You know, it was actually people who, you know, were in jobs, who couldn't go to work, who who were, you know, who were worse off during lockdowns. Mm. Um, now, of course, inflation actually bites people on fixed incomes more, you know, harder than people who are in work and can ask for pay rises, who, you know. Um, and the government says, well, actually, the money's got to go not to people on fixed incomes, it's going to the, the squeezed middle or whatever. Um, and so there's a, there's a real philosophical sort of um, lack of consistency here and a practical lack of consistency here. And that's that's the sort of clue that this is really just kind of political. It's a stopgap budget, isn't it, really? Like, I mean, it, you know, the, the National was trying to portray it as a, they said, a backwards budget and a, what was the other one? A, a, the, the, Blink, did they say blinkered budget? A, or? Uh, it was another B word. Buster budget, yeah, the blowout budget. I think they were oh, going for budget, as well, yeah. which, I don't, which I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure if that necessarily tracks true. Because one of the critical things, of course, about this three fifty dollar payment is that it is a one off, and that mm. implicates treasury to 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 some extent. But, I think Luxon's right in one sense when he talks about wasteful spending. Because I mean, if you look at the winter energy payment, everyone over the age of sixty five who gets superannuation gets it, but they don't. Not everyone needs it. Like Bob Jones doesn't need it. Winston Peters probably probably doesn't need it. So like if you had more targeted spending so that you're not, so that, you know, some people are getting more than 350 and the ones who don't need it are getting less, that that would be a more responsible approach that, to, to, to spending that money. And that loops us back to our conversation about small target strategies, doesn't it? Like neither party is going gonna, is gonna to go there. No, no, that's right. You, you certainly don't want old people upset. They all vote. Yeah. That, that's, you know, the terrible thing. I mean, that, that, that's the, the issue, right? We don't need to lower the voting age as per Gulleras Garamond's bill. We need to, like, we need to set a maximum 
probably at 65 as soon as I you, was you, thinking this last okay. night. It's like if we're not going to let 16-year-olds vote, we should probably not let people so over the gonna, age of 65 so vote. This, like this also you can't have it both ways. This also the rich and reduce the franchise to all people under the age of 65 are the two conclusions from our... Independent panel on electoral form. Today. Yeah. Now, just following up something that we discussed in the uh, in the pre-budget going by lunchtime special. Oh yes. Uh, where I talked about uh, how our uh, our arts infrastructure funding was the least popular announcement of the two thousand and nine budget mm. uh, by uh, English. I think uh, by uh, by the national government that was that was about ten million bucks or something. This year, massive seven point five million for the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Yeah. Yeah. And guess how, guess how much Te Matatini got? Uh, about two million bucks, I think. Yeah, even though literally tens of thousands of people participate in Matatini and hundreds of thousands of spectators come, um, it gets way less than New Zealand Symphony Orchestra and Royal New Zealand Ballet that has way less reach and way less participation. So it's a good example of... Um, of um, inequity again in the system. And the Māori Party did a press release last week having a twack because, of course, Rawiri Waititi um, is a, a kapahaka aficionado winner. There of, are um, also some questions about the, the amounts of money that were going to the relatively to Health NZ and the Māori Health Authority. And I think we should talk about that at greater length uh, soon in terms of those health reforms, um, it's quite. We could just touch really briefly on that electoral reform program. Gauras Garaman's bill was drawn from the ballot, um, and it's sort of a collection. A kind, of, it's kind of a medley of electoral a reform, pleasure. Calls, a grab bag, uh, a smorgasbord, mm. and then within a few, maybe forty eight hours, the <laughs> Chris Farfoy had put out announced the in, an independent panel <laughs> to consider electoral reform, which seems like it will be an probably. I don't know, can they coexist? It seems like a bit of bad luck, really, for Goras Garaman and Safaras that will give them a pretext to say, oh, no, we're not going to let that one through on the on the first reading because we've got our own we've got our own program underway. Some of the stuff is absolute no-brainers, like Māori being able to switch roles. Like, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. Why, do, why yeah. do they even need to yeah. have another... Um, what's your Macaulay on it? Like, just pass the legislation already. It's stupid. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think the this does yeah lets labour off the hook um, because I think there are a number of reform. There's a number of very sensible reforms in uh, Garamond's bill, mm. um, but then it's coupled in with this you know letting sixteen year olds vote, which I saw a Curia poll which said that about like five percent of the electorates in favour of that. But you want Not to sure change that so that nobody over the age of sixty five gets to vote on whether people under the age over the age of sixty. I mean, it's going to be a very let's get an complicated yeah. complicated system. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean. 16-year-old voting, I think, is uh, I think would be a huge distraction for the government um, in the sense that not only uh, is it something that I think is broadly unpopular, mm. but you would just have so many of these fucking precocious teens, like, on the airwaves and, like, just, you know, sort of rehearsing their canned lines. Like, I, it would just be, it, it would just be insufferable. I like... I don't know. Look, we've got to finish this. We've got to finish this. Look, if, if you've never been bullied by a 16-year-old precocious... <laughs> I would much rather... <laughs> ...spokesperson on, on RNZ's The Panel, then I don't want to hear your... <laughs> your I trust, oh, I I trust, I trust the 16-year-old's judgment over the boomer's judgment any um, day. Bless you, boomers. We love you dearly. Um, don't listen to these awful, nah. awful, Get unkind out. teenagers that I'm 
gathered with. We're going to talk about the Chloe movie. We don't really have time. Quick word on the the NZ on Air funding the Chloe documentary, which became a sort of uh, brief uh, focus of controversy. Should we be just making films about all the candidates? I saw someone going, you know, they're not going to make a, a movie about uh, a TV documentary about Simeon Brown. And I thought, I really, I'd like, I like, personally, I'd love to watch a documentary about Simeon Brown, quite seriously. No, look, it's about, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with doing documentaries about politicians. Um, you know, Chloe Swarbrick is an interesting uh, person, an interesting story. At the same time, you know, I watched the short film that the producers who have got this funding to make a feature out of did about Chloe. Huh. And it's not, it's not exactly a hard-hitting fly-on-the-wall kind of thing. It's uh, it's kind of like an ad. Huh. Um, you know, if, if we could get a new, you know, I mean, the, the, the high-water mark, I think, in New Zealand terms is that uh, show, ca- uh, that movie Campaign from the 1996 uh, election. Yeah. And actually, actually the, the director of that was, was spotted with Jamie Lee Ross, during the campaign last year. Mm. He, he was actually, I got a letter to this because he turned up with Jamie Lee Ross to the nation. Is that right? Uh, before Jamie Lee Ross took one look at who was in the green room and turned around and left. <laughs> and, um, uh, and and so that, that a fly-on-the-wall documentary, you know, of that campaign, I'd love that to That would see. be interesting, wouldn't it? And um, we may have more to say about that in another podcast. Finally, Annabelle. I just think that David Seymour, like, I completely disagree, and I think that, like, politis- all the politicians jumping in on this actually politicises New Zealand on air even more and um, and what's the difference between a documentary and being on Q&A mm. or something like that. Mm. But also I feel like David Seymour really doesn't have any moral high ground in this space. Somebody, I mean, if you believe in it, get someone else to lead the argument. But this is a guy who received his taxpayer-funded salary while doing Dancing with the Stars. So it's like, bro, this is not this is not for you. This argument is not for you. I mean, my only observation in terms of the politics of it is that when I was working for the Minister for the Arts, Creative New Zealand gave $20,000 to Nikki Hager to go to the Venice Biennale. So as far as I can tell, the creative funding agencies are veering positively. It's about the seventh or eighth time you brought that up on this podcast and you're going to start talking about Jeffrey Palm before we do that. Let's call it quits. Ka kite. Say bye. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.